Part One, Sections Eleven and Twelve of Flatland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. Flatland, a Romance of Many Dimensions by Edwin Abbott Abbott. Part One, Section Eleven, Concerning Our Priests. It is high time that I should pass from these brief and discursive notes about things in Flatland to the central event of this book, my initiation into the mysteries of space. That is my subject. All that has gone before is merely preface. For this reason I must omit many matters of which the explanation would not, I flatter myself, be without interest for my readers. As, for example, our method of propelling and stopping ourselves, although destitute of feet, the means by which we give fixity to structures of wood, stone, or brick, although, of course, we have no hands, nor can we lay foundations as you can, nor avail ourselves of the lateral pressure of the earth. The manner in which the rain originates in the intervals between our various zones, so that the northern regions do not intercept the moisture from falling on the southern. The nature of our hills and mines, our trees and vegetables, our seasons and harvests, our alphabet and method of writing adapted to our linear tablets. These and a hundred other details of our physical existence I must pass over, nor do I mention them now except to indicate to my readers that their omission proceeds not from forgetfulness on the part of the author, but from his regard for the time of the reader. Yet, before I proceed to my legitimate subject, some few final remarks will no doubt be expected by my readers upon those pillars and mainstays of the constitution of Flatland, the controllers of our conduct, and shapers of our destiny, the objects of universal homage and almost of adoration, need I say that I mean our circles or priests. When I call them priests— let me not be understood as meaning no more than the term denotes with you. With us, our priests are administrators of all business, art, and science, directors of trade, commerce, generalship, architecture, engineering, education, statesmanship, legislature, morality, theology. Doing nothing themselves, they are the causes of everything worth doing that is done by others. Although popularly every one called a circle is deemed a circle, yet among the better educated classes it is known that no circle is really a circle, but only a polygon with a very large number of very small sides. In proportion to the number of the sides, the polygon approximates to a circle, and when the number is very great, say, for example, three or four hundred, it is extremely difficult for the most delicate touch to feel any polygonal angles. Let me say, rather, it would be difficult, for, as I have shown above, recognition by feeling is unknown among the highest society, and to feel a circle would be considered a most audacious insult. This habit of abstention from feeling in the best society enables a circle the more easily to sustain the veil of mystery, in which from his earliest years he is wont to enwrap the exact nature of his perimeter or circumference. 
Three feet being the average perimeter, it follows that, in a polygon of three hundred sides, each side will be no more than the hundredth part of a foot in length, or little more than the tenth part of an inch, and in a polygon of six or seven hundred sides, the sides are little larger than the diameter of a spaceland pinhead. It is always assumed, by courtesy, that the chief circle for the time being has ten thousand sides. The ascent of the posterity of the circles in the social scale is not restricted, as it is among the lower regular classes, by the law of nature which limits the increase of sides to one in each generation. If it were so, the number of sides in a circle would be a mere question of pedigree and arithmetic, and the four hundred and ninety-seventh descendant of an equilateral triangle would necessarily be a polygon with five hundred sides. But this is not the case. Nature's law prescribes two antagonistic decrees affecting circular propagation. First, that as the race climbs higher in the scale of development, so development shall proceed at an accelerated pace. Second, that in the same proportion the race shall become less fertile. Consequently, in the home of a polygon of four or five hundred sides, it is rare to find a sun. More than one is never seen. On the other hand, the sun of a five-hundred-sided polygon has been known to possess five hundred and fifty or even six hundred sides. Art also steps in to help the process of the higher evolution. Our physicians have discovered that the small and tender sides of an infant polygon of the higher class can be fractured and his whole frame reset with such exactness that a polygon of two or three hundred sides sometimes, by no means always, for the process is attended with serious risk, but sometimes overleaps two or three hundred generations, and, as it were, doubles at a stroke the number of his progenitors and the nobility of his descent. Many a promising child is sacrificed in this way. Scarcely one out of ten survives. Yet so strong is the parental ambition among those polygons who are, as it were, on the fringe of the circular class, that it is very rare to find a nobleman of that position in society who has neglected to place his first-born son in the circular neotherapeutic gymnasium before he has attained the age of a month. One year determines success or failure. At the end of that time the child has, in all probability, added one more to the tombstones that crowd the neotherapeutic cemetery. But on rare occasions a glad procession bears back the little one to his exultant parents, no longer a polygon, but a circle, at least by courtesy. And a single instance of so blessed a result induces multitudes of polygonal parents to submit to similar domestic sacrifices which have a dissimilar issue. Section 12 of the Doctrine of Our Priests As to the doctrine of the circles, it may briefly be summed up in a single maxim, attend to your configuration. Whether political, ecclesiastical, or moral, all their teaching has for its object the improvement of individual and collective configuration, 
with special reference, of course, to the configuration of the circles, to which all other objects are subordinated. It is the merit of the circles that they have effectually suppressed those ancient heresies which led men to waste energy and sympathy in the vain belief that conduct depends upon will, effort, training, encouragement, praise, or anything else but configuration. It was Pantocyclus, the illustrious circle mentioned above as the queller of the colour of Oat, who first convinced mankind that configuration makes the man, that if, for example, you are born an isosceles with two uneven sides, you will assuredly go wrong unless you have them made even, for which purpose you must go to the isosceles hospital. Similarly, if you are a triangle or square, or even a polygon born with any irregularity, you must be taken to one of the regular hospitals to have your disease cured. Otherwise you will end your days in the state prison, or by the angle of the state executioner. All faults or defects, from the slightest misconduct to the most flagitious crime, Pentocyclus attributed to some deviation from perfect regularity in the bodily figure, caused, perhaps, if not congenital, by some collision in a crowd, by neglect to take exercise, or by taking too much of it, or even by a sudden change of temperature resulting in a shrinkage or expansion in some too susceptible part of the frame. Therefore, concluded that illustrious philosopher, neither good conduct nor bad conduct is a fit subject in any sober estimation for either praise or blame. For why should you praise, for example, the integrity of a square who faithfully defends the interests of his client, when you ought, in reality, rather to admire the exact precision of his rectangles? Or again, why blame a lying, thievish isosceles, when you ought rather to deplore the incurable inequality of his sides? Theoretically, this doctrine is unquestionable but it has practical drawbacks. In dealing with an isosceles, if a rascal pleads that he cannot help stealing because of his unevenness, you reply that for that very reason, because he cannot help being a nuisance to his neighbours, you, the magistrate, cannot help sentencing him to be consumed, and there's an end of the matter. But in little domestic difficulties, where the penalty of consumption or death is out of the question, this theory of configuration sometimes comes in awkwardly. And I must confess that occasionally, when one of my own hexagonal grandsons pleads, as an excuse for his disobedience, that a sudden change of the temperature has been too much for his perimeter, and that I ought to lay the blame not on him but on his configuration, which can only be strengthened by abundance of the choicest sweetmeats, I neither see my way logically to reject, nor practically to accept, his conclusions. For my own part, I find it best to assume that a good sound scolding or castigation has some latent and strengthening influence on my grandson's configuration, though I own that I have no grounds for thinking so. At all events, I am not alone in my way of extricating myself from this dilemma, for I find that many of the highest circles, sitting as judges in law courts, 
use praise and blame towards regular and irregular figures, and in their homes I know by experience that, when scolding their children, they speak about right or wrong as vehemently and passionately as if they believed that these names represented real existences, and that a human figure is really capable of choosing between them. Consistently carrying out their policy of making configuration the leading idea in every mind, the circles reverse the nature of that commandment which in spaceland regulates the relations between parents and children. With you, children are taught to honour their parents. With us, next to the circles, who are the chief object of universal homage, a man is taught to honour his grandson, if he has one, or, if not, his son. By honour, however, is by no means meant indulgence, but a reverent regard for their highest interests. And the circles teach that the duty of fathers is to subordinate their own interests to those of posterity, thereby advancing the welfare of the whole state, as well as that of their own immediate descendants. The weak point in the system of the circles if a humble square may venture to speak of anything circular as containing any element of weakness, appears to me to be found in their relations with women. As it is of the utmost importance for society that irregular births should be discouraged, it follows that no woman who has any irregularities in her ancestry is a fit partner for one who desires that his posterity should rise by regular degrees in the social scale. Now, the irregularity of a male is a matter of measurement, but as all women are straight, and therefore visibly regular, so to speak, one has to devise some other means of ascertaining what I may call their invisible irregularity, that is to say, their potential irregularities as regards possible offspring. This is effected by carefully kept pedigrees, which are preserved and supervised by the state and without a certified pedigree no woman is allowed to marry. Now it might have been supposed that a circle, proud of his ancestry and regardful for a posterity which might possibly issue hereafter in a chief circle, would be more careful than any other to choose a wife who had no blot on her escutcheon. But it is not so. The care in choosing a regular wife appears to diminish as one rises in the social scale. Nothing would induce an aspiring isosceles, who had hopes of generating an equilateral son, to take a wife who reckoned a single irregularity among her ancestors. A square or pentagon, who is confident that his family is steadily on the rise, does not inquire above the five-hundredth generation. A hexagon, or dodecahedron, is even more careless of the wife's pedigree. But a circle has been known deliberately to take a wife who has had an irregular great-grandfather, and all because of some slight superiority of luster, or because of the charms of a low voice, which, with us, even more than with you, is thought an excellent thing in woman. Such ill-judged marriages are, as might be expected, barren, if they do not result in positive irregularity or in diminution of sides. 
but none of these evils have hitherto proved sufficiently deterrent. The loss of a few sides in a highly developed polygon is not easily noticed, and is sometimes compensated by a successful operation in the neotherapeutic gymnasium, as I have described above. And the circles are too much disposed to acquiesce in infecundity as a law of the superior development. Yet, if this evil be not arrested, the gradual diminution of the circular class may soon become more rapid, and the time may not be far distant when, the race being no longer able to produce a chief circle, the constitution of flatland must fall. One other word of warning suggests itself to me, though I cannot so easily mention a remedy, and this also refers to our relations with women. About three hundred years ago, it was decreed by the chief circle that, since women are deficient in reason but abundant in emotion, they ought no longer to be treated as rational, nor receive any mental education. The consequence was that they were no longer taught to read, nor even to master arithmetic, enough to enable them to count the angles of their husband or children and hence they sensibly declined during each generation in intellectual power. And this system of female non-education, or quietism, still prevails. My fear is that, with the best intentions, this policy has been carried so far as to react injuriously on the male sex. For the consequence is that, as things now are, we males have to lead a kind of bilingual, and I may almost say, by mental existence. With the women we speak of love, duty, right, wrong, pity, hope, and other irrational and emotional conceptions which have no existence, and the fiction of which has no object except to control feminine exuberances. But among ourselves, and in our books, we have an entirely different vocabulary, and I may almost say, idiom. Love, then, becomes the anticipation of benefits. Duty becomes necessity, or fitness, and other words are correspondingly transmuted. Moreover, among women, we use language implying the utmost deference for their sex, and they fully believe that the chief circle himself is not more devoutly adored by us than they are but behind their backs they are both regarded and spoken of, by all except the very young, as being little better than mindless organisms. Our theology also in the women's chambers is entirely different from our theology elsewhere. Now, my humble fear is that this double training, in language as well as in thought, imposes somewhat too heavy a burden upon the young, especially when, at the age of three years old, they are taken from the maternal care, and taught to unlearn the old language, except for the purpose of repeating it in the presence of their mothers and nurses, and to learn the vocabulary and idiom of science. Already, methinks, I discern a weakness in the grasp of mathematical truth at the present time, as compared with the more robust intellect of our ancestors three hundred years ago. I say nothing of the possible danger if a woman should ever surreptitiously learn to read, 
and convey to her sex the result of her perusal of a single popular volume, nor of the possibility that the indiscretion or disobedience of some infant male might reveal to a mother the secrets of the logical dialect. On the simple ground of the enfeebling of the male intellect, I rest this humble appeal to the highest authorities to reconsider the regulations of female education. End of section twelve and of part one. Recording by Ruth Golding.